Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, and that begs the question, what is an establishment of religion exactly? What does it mean to make a law respecting an establishment of religion? For helpful background on this, I've turned to a new book published by the University of Missouri Press called Disestablishment and Religious Dissent, Church-State Relations in the New American States. It's edited by Carl Esbeck and Jonathan Den Hartog. In their introduction, the editors note that when the British North American colonies became free and independent states, those states wrote their own constitutions of government. And in those state constitutions, there was a wide range of approaches to church-state relations rooted in the unique history of each colony. In some states, government directly supported a specific church with taxes that funded its clergy. Some governments exercised control over church governance, doctrine, and clerical appointments. Some states licensed and regulated dissenting churches that weren't part of the established ecclesiastical structures. Some states had mandatory attendance at the state-established church, and some used the state church to record births, marriages, and deaths. Some states had religious tests for public office and for voting rights and religious preferences for military commissions and university appointments. One by one, the book tells the story of how the states disestablished their own churches during the period running from 1776 to 1833. The editors note that the federal government never went through a process of disestablishment because there never was an established national church. And in fact, the original constitutional text, even before the Bill of Rights, said that there would be no religious test for national office. And so one way to read the Establishment Clause is this. Congress will make no law respecting, that is, having anything to do with, one of the existing state establishments of religion. The other side of this coin is that the national government will not establish its own religion, will have no religious tests for public office, at least at the national level. But like everything else, this gets complicated. There are some easy cases where we could all agree that some national government practice would be a violation of the Establishment Clause. Let's say Congress made the Episcopal Church the National Church of the United States, then made the President of the United States the head of the Church, and gave the bishops of the Church representation in the U.S. Senate. It'd be fair to say that that is an establishment of religion, that it violates the First Amendment and certainly violates the spirit of having no religious tests for national office. But what if the military pays the salary of a chaplain, or Congress opens its session with prayer, or the Supreme Court itself opens with the plea, God save the United States in this honorable court? Where are the lines to be drawn here? In the 20th century, after the process of incorporation, we also apply the Establishment Clause to the states. It's grammatically awkward to do that. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. We've had a long and complex history of state establishments of religion, but we now read the clause to mean that neither the states nor the federal government may set up an establishment of religion. And at the state level, it gets complicated too. What about public prayer, Bible verses, or religious symbols on public monuments, public displays of the Ten Commandments? or all the ways that religion could potentially intersect with our public school system. That last example is where our story today begins, with the case of Everson versus Board of Education in 1947. 
This is just after World War II, and New Jersey for the last several years allowed local school boards to provide transportation to private schools. One of the townships in New Jersey simply reimbursed parents for the cost of transportation to schools, whether public or private. But a lot of the kids there went to Catholic schools, and those Catholic schools all provided regular religious instruction. So the question, did the state of New Jersey violate the Establishment Clause? Justice Hugo Black wrote the majority opinion for the court in the case. This is the first case in which the court incorporates the Establishment Clause into how it reads the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The question, then, is really about what the Establishment Clause means and requires in this particular instance. Does it mean that no public money should go to support religious institutions or religious instruction? And if so, is this policy of reimbursing parents for the cost of transportation to religious schools a violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendments? On the first question, what does the Establishment Clause mean, the court says this, The Establishment of Religion Clause of the First Amendment means this, Neither a state nor the federal government can set up a church. Neither can pass laws which aid one religion, aid all religions, or prefer one religion over another. Neither can force nor influence a person to go to or to remain away from church against his will or force him to profess a belief in any religion. No person can be punished for entertaining or professing religious beliefs or disbeliefs, for church attendance or non-attendance. No tax in any amount, large or small, can be levied to support any religious activities or institutions, whatever they may be called, or whatever form they may adopt to teach or practice religion. Neither a state nor the federal government can openly or secretly participate in the affairs of any religious organizations or groups and vice versa. And then Justice Black quotes from a letter from Thomas Jefferson that he sent in 1802 to a Baptist organization in the state of Connecticut. Baptists were part of the dissenting or nonconformist churches, and so they were big advocates for religious freedom and for disestablishment. Jefferson in this letter writes to them, he says, Believing with you that religion is a matter that lies solely between man and his God, he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship. That the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their national legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Justice Black picks up that wall of separation metaphor in his opinion. In the words of Jefferson, he writes, The clause against establishment of religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. But on the second question, is this policy of reimbursing parents for transportation costs a violation of the Establishment Clause, Justice Black and the court say no. The key is that the state, when doling out benefits to its citizen, remains neutral with respect to the religion of its citizens. If they make a general benefit available, in this case costs for transportation to school, then they have to make it available to everyone. As Justice Black puts it, the state cannot bar anyone because of their faith or lack of it from receiving the benefits of public welfare legislation. And so the court's conclusion in Everson, the First Amendment has erected a wall between church and state. That wall must be kept high and impregnable. We could not approve the slightest breach, and New Jersey has not breached it here. That decision in Everson teed up a series of challenges over the next couple of decades to long-standing practices in public schools in the states, including prayer and Bible reading. In New York, one school district had students recite the following prayer at the start of school each day. The students would say, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg for Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. 
In the case of Engel versus Vitale in 1962, the Supreme Court put an end to the practice. We think that by using its public school system to encourage recitation of the prayer, the state of New York has adopted a practice wholly inconsistent with the Establishment Clause, Justice Black wrote for the court in that case. And he went on, The constitutional prohibition against laws respecting an establishment of religion must at least mean that in this country, it is no part of the business of government to compose official prayers for any group of the American people to recite as part of a religious program carried on by the government. Justice Potter Stewart, in dissent, though, pointed out that the prayer was technically voluntary. Parents could opt out if they wanted to, and he thought that permitting students to recite this prayer wasn't in any meaningful sense establishing a state church. This was instead part of a long history of similar practices, part of what Stewart called the religious traditions of our people, reflected in countless practices of the institutions and officials of our government. Stewart asked, what about God save this honorable court? What about prayer in Congress or at presidential inaugurations? What about the Pledge of Allegiance, national days of prayer and fasting? Even the Declaration of Independence, which invokes God as the God of nature, the creator, supreme judge of the world, and its providential ruler. And we might ask, along with Stuart, yeah, what about those things? The court started then sketching an answer to that challenge in the case of Abington Township versus Shemp in 1963, just a couple of years after Engel versus Vitale. That case had to do not only with prayer, but also with devotional Bible reading in public schools. Under Pennsylvania law at the time, public schools were required to start the day with a reading from Christian scripture and then a recitation of the Lord's Prayer. The Supreme Court again struck down the practice under the Establishment Clause, and Justice Stewart again registered his dissent. But Stewart was alone in his dissenting opinion. It was clear that the court, under both the Doctrine of Incorporation and its Developing Establishment Clause jurisprudence, would no longer allow the states to begin the public school day with prayer and Bible reading. Every year when I'm teaching this, I'll have a student or two raise their hand and tell me that their public school actually did still have sponsored prayer or Bible reading in some form or fashion. Now some 60 years out from these Supreme Court decisions, they want to know why. The answer, I think, is that no one is threatening litigation in their hometowns. It illustrates, in a way, the institutional weakness of the Supreme Court. Hamilton and the Federalist Papers said that the court had neither force nor will but merely judgment. It can make an authoritative decision for the two parties in a case. The reasoning in the decision will or should at least inform how other lower courts will handle similar cases that arise in the future. But if local school officials go on with business as usual, no one in the community complains or threatens litigation, then there's no real enforcement mechanism. There must be an actual case or controversy before the court steps in. These challenges are usually brought by parents who allege a harm. But if no one alleges a harm, there won't be much legal pressure to change. And so these practices can persist for generations. And that was the case of the public school I went to. Our football coach prayed before every football game in high school. It was the most ridiculous prayer, and I can still remember it today. We would get around in the locker room, hold hands. He would say, Dear God, Thank you for giving us the opportunity to play this great game of football. And please be with the Hawks or Eagles or whoever we were playing that day, because we will surely punish them play after play after play. And then we'd all yell, Amen, real loud, and we'd run out onto the field and we'd be excited for the football game. And just telling that story makes me laugh, but also makes me realize how much that exercise was not really religious in any meaningful sense. It was a kind of weird blending of longstanding American traditions where football coaches have invoked God's aid against their opponents as a way to motivate their athletes before the game. And I think Potter Stewart would have said, yeah, and that's fine. 
that's part of being American. It's part of our culture. And the football coach is in no way establishing a religion by praying that prayer. But the rest of the court from the 60s on would have disagreed, and I'm sure if any parent or student would have complained, it would have been the end of it. In the case of Abington versus Shemp, the court started to sketch out a test for how we might know whether some policy or tradition violates the Establishment Clause. In Everson, it was okay that taxpayer money reimbursed parents for transportation costs to religious schools. In Engel, it was not okay that the government composed and endorsed a prayer. And in Abington, it was not okay that the government mandated Bible reading at school. What makes one practice okay and another not okay? What if there was a class where students read the Bible as part of their education so they could better understand literature or history, not in a devotional kind of way, but because it was important for them to understand the basic narrative of the Bible and how it's influenced our world? What if the school allowed students to voluntarily gather in a room before school to pray? What if instead of transportation costs, the state also reimbursed tuition costs to private religious schools? How do we untangle what's acceptable and what's not acceptable under the Establishment Clause? What the court says in Abington versus Shemp is this. The test may be stated as follows. What are the purpose and primary effect of the enactment? If either is the advancement or inhibition of religion, then the enactment exceeds the scope of legislative power as circumscribed by the Constitution. That is to say that to withstand the strictures of the Establishment Clause, there must be a secular legislative purpose and a primary effect that neither advances nor inhibits religion. That test then gets refined a bit in a case called Lemon versus Kurtzman in 1971 and becomes known as the Lemon Test. And we'll talk in the next episode about the rise and the recent fall of the Lemon Test and where that leaves church-state jurisprudence today.